Our second lesson is taken from the Old Testament. It is taken from the book of 1 Kings. I am reading from 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21 following. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was forty and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. And they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also Sodomites in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shashak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away all the treasures of the king's house and of the house of the Lord. And he took away all. He took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their stead shields of brass and committed them unto the hands of the chief of the guard which kept the door of the king's house. And so it was when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. I want to speak this morning on a theme that I spoke on first in this church in 1963 and only one time after that. It is taken from the Old Testament from the book of 1 Kings, and there is a parallel account of this scripture that is also found in 2 Chronicles. This tells us a very interesting story. It tells us about Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. You will remember, of course, that Solomon had been a great builder and a mighty leader. David had done a great and unifying work in pulling the kingdom together. Solomon had inherited all of the benefits of his father's great throne, but you know his story well, how that this man's heart was often turned away from God by a desire for luxury and by a desire for many things and by strange women that often came into his life. And then somehow we see the sins of the father beginning to crop out in his son, as is often the case. And so after Solomon's death, Rehoboam came into a position of power. His name, Rehoboam, means enlarger of thy kingdom. And one quaint Puritan commentary that I've been reading says that he enlarged it all right, he enlarged it from 12 tribes to two tribes. Uh, enlarger of thy kingdom is a misnomer for him. But Rehoboam did this because his old father's counselors, Solomon's counselors, had come to the new young king, and they said to Rehoboam, your father taxed the people too greatly. He wanted to build too many great things. 
And as a result of it, the yoke of this taxation has been chafing upon the people. And therefore, uh, give them some respite from all of this. Well, he had some young friends. And so he invited the younger counselors to come and to give their opinion of what should be done with this new power and authority that he possessed. And so they said to him just the opposite from the older counselors. They said, you go out and tell them that if my father beat you with whips, I will beat you with scorpions. There will be no release from the taxation and no relief from it, but it will be greater than before. I do not want to hear any more about it. And so just by one swaggering word of insolence, King Rehoboam lost forever ten of the twelve tribes uh, of the United Kingdom. And so his, his people began that shout, to your tents, O Israel, and this split the kingdom. And then it was not long after this that we began to read these things, that Rehoboam did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to jealousy, he and his people with the sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land. If you take this time to read the commentaries which deal with the type of sinful abominations that these people had engaged in here, you see the whole scene repeated again and again, week after week, in what's taking place in America today, with the advent of pornography and homosexuality, and even child prostitution to crass and alarming proportions. Well, such evil will always bring down the wrath of God. And so it will bring it down on America, and so it brought it down upon these people too. They did that which was evil in the sight of God. They compromised their morality. They compromised their faith. And so it was no time at all until Shashak, the king of Egypt, began to see that this disunited and weakened people would pose no formidable threat for his army. And so he marched in and took over everything. He heard that their temple was a magnificent structure built to the glory of God and that it was filled with many treasures. And so King Shashak sent his people there and they looked and saw all of the beaten shields of gold which Solomon had put to adorn the temple to the glory of God. And they took them all down. And they took these treasures back to Egypt. And this weak, spineless Rehoboam called in his advisors. And they made from an alloy cheap brass shields. And they took these brass shields, which when they were burnished and polished, had a shiny appearance. And they put them in the temple. And so with great pomp and ceremony, these fakes, these phony shields were born into the temple and placed up. And the, this went on as a mockery in the sight of God. 
shields of brass for shields of gold. You can stop and think about this country in which we live, and you can almost see the same thing happening here. You can see that you can almost rephrase the words that are, are given. You can take the words that are right here. And so America did evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. I don't know any time in the history of America when it's ever been as debauched as it is right now. How they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also Sodomites in the land. You could almost have a synod of Sodom. Sodomites in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And so this thing happened. And so we see a nation become weak. A nation is held together by whatever gives it moral cohesion. In our case, the people who came here originally were people who were haunted with a desperate desire to know, to love, to reverence, to worship God Almighty. They had absolute moral values to which they adhered. And they wanted their children to be educated and reared in that type of nurture. And nurture means, uh, it means nourishment. It means helping them. It means like nurturing a plant to grow, feeding it, pruning it, cultivating it. Admonition is instruction that was to be given. And so this is to be done. Well, it is to be done in a nation. And when a nation begins to lose its faith in God, it becomes weak. It becomes weak and it begins to fall apart at the seams. Edward Gibbon wrote a classic called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He had a very interesting tutor whose name was William Law, a very godly man, although Gibbon himself was not at all uh, a godly person, but he had a lot of respect for William Law. Edward Gibbon said that in his day, in Rome's day, when it fell, that uh, the philosophers considered all religions as equally false. And the hoi polloi, the common people, considered all religions as equally true. And that the politicians considered all religions as equally useful. And that's just about been repeated today. Some of the scientists consider them equally false. Most of the people that you speak with on the street say it doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you're sincere. And the magistrates all think they're equally useful. They'll get on the bandwagon if it will get them a boat at the right time or if they can use it in some way. And so this is what happens. But we have a nation, and our nation has responsibility, and it's become terribly weakened. Rome, when it became weak, because of a lack of discipline and a breakdown in the morality and in the home, also saw this begin to affect its soldiers and its armies. Let me read you these words verbatim from uh, Edward Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. The effeminate, catch that word, 
luxury which infected the manners of the courts and the cities had instilled their secret and destructive poison into the camps of the legions. The soldiers complained of the weight of the armor which they seldom wore now, and they successfully obtained permission to lay aside both their breastplate and their helmet. The heavy weapons of their ancestors insensibly dropped from their feeble hands. They reluctantly marched into the field. They preferred the ignominy of flight to the pain of wounds. Without energy, these soldiers abandoned their own and the public defense for easy indolence. And this was one of the immediate causes of the downfall of the empire of Rome. Now that can happen to a nation. It can also happen to a church. We who belong to a church are supposed to have shields of gold which are erected. We are supposed to have a Bible which is the infallible word of God, the only rule of faith and practice, which gives us some limits that say thus far and no further. Thus saith the Lord is not spoken with equivocation. It is not put forward as a basis for negotiation. It is absolute. It is the word of God. You may accept it, you may reject it, but you cannot negotiate it. You cannot water it down. And so when God speaks, God intends to be taken seriously. And we who claim the name of Christ in the church are wrestling, not against flesh and blood, as Paul said to the Ephesians, but against principalities and powers against the workers of iniquity in high places. Some of our solemn assemblies seem to have forgotten this. I was astounded last year when I read that tremendous speech over and over again by Solzhenitsyn, which he made at the graduation of Harvard. You know what Solzhenitsyn said? He recognized the existence of a cosmic power of evil that was at work in the world. The only other public figure that I ever heard in person recognized this, was the man who used to be the President of the United Nations General Assembly, Charles Malick, at a prayer breakfast in Washington. He said, when will the leaders of the West wake up to the fact that there is an evil supernatural force at work in the world and that it must be combated with in supernatural spiritual manners? The only American president that I know of that ever even mentioned the word sin as far as any public address was concerned. And Fulton Sheen, by the way, brought this out at the prayer breakfast in Washington this past year. Was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln brought it out. He brought it out in a time in which he called upon the nation to a time of fasting and prayer because he knew that a nation which sinned against God had to repent and turn from these sins or see its own destruction. When you look at the words of the New Testament, you hear the Apostle Paul saying, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You hear him saying, quit you like men and be strong. You hear him saying, stand fast. This is the message that comes to the church. And this is the message that is needed most in our national life, in our church life, in our domestic life, 
and in our personal lives. So we in the church need to come to an understanding of it. A man who is by no means a flaming evangelical or conservative has written these words in a book called The Sleeping Giant. He said, it's time to erase from membership those who treat their membership cavalierly. Most churches could be two-thirds smaller and lose nothing in power. Few pastors would dare to say that more than one-third of their churches are really responding to the claims of Christ. And the, thir and the second third are peripheral. The third third are out, and the pastors themselves are often blissfully supine, just as their people are. The church is now a club. It's a highly exclusive organization. It has, theoretically, the most stringent standards of membership of any organization in the world. If any man would come after me, its founder said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If we can't buy the standards, then we should stay out of the church. If we are in and not measuring up to the standards, then we ought to get out. Too long have American churches seduced people for Christ. Unless the language be thought unduly harsh, it should be remembered that the dictionary defines seduce as to persuade one as into disobedience and disloyalty or desertion of a Lord or a cause. The soft cell, soft gospel has attracted a soft people to soft jobs, but it has not turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. It has not made disciples of all nations. It has not driven wealthy American churchmen into the ghettos and the slums and the gutters of the world to pick up the children who are segregated, impoverished, and starved. The church is finding that it's full of perjurers. We have stood up in front of hundreds of witnesses sometimes and have said that we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But there are people in the churches who never crack the Bible, who never pray with each other, who never do anything for justice. Half the world goes to bed hungry, according to the UN, and the church's response is a few boxcars of powdered milk at Easter. Two-thirds of the world is not Christian, and the church's response is a nickel per member per week for foreign missions. A good Boy Scout troop has a higher standard for membership than that. These words need to be taken seriously because they mean that we have put up shields of brass where shields of gold once stood in a nation, in a nation once where the commandments of God were greatly recognized, oh, where God was honored and respected and loved, in a church where the Bible was preached and taught and standards were put forward. One of the healthiest signs I see is among the young people, many of whom are not willing to take what is being purveyed through the media morality that we have today. They are testing it and finding that it is wanting as far as its claims for Christ are concerned. And as a result of that fact, many of the young people have read the Bible to such a way that they're inspiring the older people to come back and to read the Bible again. Someone phrased it this way a few years ago at the University of Florida. He said the kids have made an in-run around the church and gotten back to Jesus. And when they took his commands seriously, 
It means that they have put up shields of gold where shields of brass had been put up by some of their fathers and their mothers. Those of us who are fathers have a great responsibility here. We sometimes say, I hear men say all the time, oh, my religion is in my wife's name. Or people who are busy in their business life say that their wives can take care of the problems that arise about the children. But that's not God's way of dealing. And that's not the way Scripture teaches us at all. Scripture teaches us that the man is to be a leader in his household and that he is to lead the way. I love it when we have so many men in our little Montreat church who teach Sunday school classes because I love for the little children, especially in the primary uh, grades, to see that men are willing to teach the Bible to them. This is inspiring to them. And when our children see that their fathers take the Word of God seriously, it makes a big difference to them. And they begin to want to read the Bible for themselves. And when they see their fathers pray, it makes a big difference to them. They too wish to bend their knees and pray too. Have your children, and I say this to the fathers, ever heard you call their name in prayer? Have they ever had you kneel beside them in prayer? Have they seen your head reverently bowed to thank God for your food? Do they know that church for you is not just a doleful habit that your wife intimidates you into going to, but that you come because you want to hear something of the Word of God that will have its effect in your business life, in your social contacts, and in your family life too that it's not simply play-acting. This faith of our fathers living still that we sung about a while ago. Soren Kierkegaard has a tremendous parable about the preaching goose, about the geese that used to fly over in Denmark, and how they would come down at a certain, uh, how, how the geese in a farmyard that were tame used to look up and see the geese flying by, and there was one preaching goose and he used to turn around and he would preach away at the other geese and he would say, do you see these geese flying? Do you know what enormous distances they cover in their flights? Do you know that these are our forefathers and what great and tremendous things they did? And we have it in our power to be just like them. And all of the other geese would flap their wings and be enthralled and receive some vicarious thrill, some excitement through just hearing about this. And then the farmer would come out with his big bucket and reach his hand down into the big plump kernels of corn and throw them out amongst the geese. And the geese would reach down and eat the plump kernels of corn. And they would then forget about the exploits of their fathers and what they had done in the past. The barnyard was secure. The corn was tasty, and so they were fed. We can become that way too, but we do not wish to be that way. We want to rise to a higher ground than that. But a nation, a church, a home is made up of individuals, and the individuals have an individual responsibility to
to react to God. God speaks to them. I can remember a time a year ago when I lay in a hospital called St. Mary's in Rochester, Minnesota. And when I came to in an intensive coronary care unit, I remember the feeling of a respirator being in my throat and of a monitoring device that came from measuring the flow of blood that was going into my heart and other tubes that were there. Of course, I was being fed intravenously, and I was receiving other solutions to support my life, and I was receiving oxygen because a big heart operation had been performed on me. And for 42 minutes, my heart had not beaten, and then the electrical charge had started again, but it was still very weak and wounded. And it took this artificial system to keep me alive. But then there came a day when they had to come in and all the tubes had to be taken away. And my heart had to beat on its own. And I had to take food on my own. And I say this because we need to get back to the Bible as fathers, reading the scriptures so that we might feed ourselves and in turn be strong. Not just taking the inspiration of a week on Sunday morning at church, but taking the Bible and praying to God to lead us. And God will lead us. And he will forgive our sins and he will bless us in our dealings with our children. How many of us, how many of us can see mistakes that we have made and yet we, as loving fathers, wish to forgive our children when they have sinned that we might help them back to the right way. And God is willing to forgive us. I can remember still going to Texas to preach in a revival meeting. And a law enforcement officer, like a Texas Ranger, a lawman, a very well-known and prominent lawman, came to me. And he said, you were in high school with my son. And later you were in junior college with him. My wife has died with cancer. My son has rebelled against everything that the church stands for. And he said, you know the kind of life that I used to live. He had been a very dissolute and wild character himself. He said, I've changed, but my boy won't listen to me. Will you please go and talk to him about Jesus for me? Well, in time, he gained credibility. And we can change this morning, we fathers, and we can demonstrate the reality of that change by living for Jesus Christ. We can determine that we will put back into our homes, into our own personal lives, the reading of the Bible and prayer. Into our church, we can demand the preaching of the word of God faithfully. And then we can see this translated into actions that will affect our national life for Jesus Christ. I can remember still some of our young people when we sung this hymn, as we'll sing it in closing. Rise up, O men of God, be done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. But there's another lesson there that the young people taught us, and that is to wise up, O men of God. To wise up, 
and to see the value and the joy that can come from a Christian family where shields of gold are put where shields of brass once stood. Now let us pray. O oh God, our Father, take the desire and hope in our hearts that we shall be better men and better women to set for our children examples that they can safely look to and follow because we follow in the feet of the Son of God. Work in our minds and hearts the miracle of grace this day so that we can go forth from this place with renewed dedication to thee. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.